Well, welcome back to Inside Whitehall with me, Jonathan Gullis. And me, James Starkey. So, James, we've just had the incredible Michael Gove on the pod, sharing with what it's like to be in Cabinet. What, you, what was your first impression? I mean, I thought it was a fascinating discussion. You know, Michael was incredibly open about how different prime ministers run different meetings, what happened in some of those. I mean, for me personally, the re- the really interesting bit, I've, I felt you got a real strong sense of what cabinet meetings were like, particularly under the coalition time. Yeah, I agree. I was amazed to hear how David Cameron ran those meetings and actually the, the fact that the quad, we always heard about this quad, but the fact that it was known by cabinet at the time that anything that came into the cabinet room had clearly been discussed and kind of effectively mm. signed off, which meant that it should hopefully go through reasonably smooth within the cabinet room. But then to to hear that breakdown of the fact there was probably a cabinet within the cabinet and then those cabinet subcommittees for all the Brexit stuff that you were working on with Michael when it came to uh, environmental and agricultural policies as we were looking to leave the European Union after the referendum. I mean, what did what are those committees like? Have you ever been, you know, Michael referenced it, have you ever been in any of those uh, subcommittees around you know around the edge of the room as it were no i don't think i think maybe my co-spad at the time did i um i mean loads of cross departmental meetings and they are as michael said and i spoke to another former cabinet minister about it a couple of weeks ago and it's just interesting how you decide to go and he was saying you know one way you look at it is so you've got all the issues that your department cares about as michael said when, when i was at defra we you know we had the environment bill, which had impacts on a range of departments, as he said himself, now is levelling up, but, you know, impacted everything from kind of Northern Ireland to health, you know, those kinds of things. So there's big issues. But there was, someone made the point to me the other day, because I said, oh, we're going to do this podcast. Is there anything, you know, interesting you think from a cabinet meeting perspective? And they said, well, the subcommittees, you can also use them to further your agenda. So... You know, one uh, kind of former big beast who was definitely a cabinet minister under the coalition years, apparently would look through the cabinet meetings and think, well, the subcommittee meetings, and specifically say, well, that, that's not really one that we want to focus on, but we're really trying to get this issue through, and that's a good place to push that issue and get some people on side. It's like the politics within politics, the idea yeah. of using, and like you say, that those who probably are the most effective, and I think we can easily say that whether people agree or disagree with whatever Michael's done, no one can disagree the fact he's clearly been one of the most effective ministers in cabinet with the amount of stuff he's got through cabinet, parliament and onto the statute books and clearly delivered in the country. That is that is clearly something that's quite special and unique to have that ability. And I suppose that's where I was intrigued to hear how much your junior ministers mm. using them and trusting them to be obviously across that detail and feed in and then how you gain that knowledge and insight what's going on those subcommittees and take that into the cabinet room with you to back up your argument uh, in those difficult ones. I thought that was... Interesting. I was knowing Theresa May as a former candidate under her, but knowing her now as a colleague in the House, uh, I don't think it shocks me to hear that Theresa's style was very, uh, it's short, it's sharp, it's to the point, mm. there's no need to waffle. Whereas in, it doesn't shock me also <laughs> to hear that Boris liked to go off in a, a million miles an hour in a million different directions. But to be fair to him, because uh, I've seen it firsthand, is up for the debate, basically. Yeah. And you could argue, therefore, prepares you to defend it because whatever decision you've got to make you've got to defend ultimately in the country and you've had that debate around the table hopefully you'll be prepared with all the ammunition that your own party internally are going to bring as well as obviously what those on the opposite side of the house might do well i think i mean it's it's the right point to make a shout out for two fantastic impressions we got from michael uh, <laughs> yeah. both ken clark and boris johnson impressions Who, whose was better I thought I enjoyed, Ken's. I thought I enjoyed Ken. the both. Of them. I thought Ken was particularly good. I thought Ken was Ken was the best. One. I think we need to hear some impression of colleagues from you at some point, Jonathan. Uh, I think 
maybe one day but uh who's, but, who's your best impression I don't, I don't actually know who my uh best impression is i'll have to i'll have to go i'll go away and then in a later episode <laughs> we'll come back i will it. i will try and do an impression of someone uh but yeah no i and then i'll but i thought the you know the style didn't surprise me i think but as michael tried to touch upon Look, it's the way people, th- every, all of us, all human beings, you know, I think people forget politicians are human beings. Everyone processes things in different ways. So, you know, when you're trying to make a big decision in any part of your life, you know, some people approach that in a different way. Like I am definitely someone who likes to, I guess, for want of a better word, socialize, talk to a load of other people. I was about to say, if you're, you're, you're the prime minister, God help the country, <laughs> you're, you're, you've got the cabinet table. How are you running your meeting? I think I'd be quite like Boris style. I'm definitely a Boris style. Yeah, I think I like the debate. I like a bit of back and forth. I think it helps flush things out. Um, I would convince myself in my head that I'm David Cameron. I would be like, of course I'm like this (laughs) super CEO, like of a Fortune 100 style company. Like I'm going to come in. David sounded like very calm. Very professional. Very very calm. Like a a very good head teacher. Michael obviously wouldn't talk about it, understandably. But, you know, obviously we've now got Rishi as PM. Uh, my guess is that Rishi's are a bit Cameron-esque. That's my guess. I would get, and I can, I can back that up in part by how I've seen Rishi interact when it comes to colleagues. And look, one of the things that uh, we didn't raise, but maybe people aren't aware of, is that that cabinet room has something that even backbench MPs like me have had the privilege to sit around, not mm. not as a member of the cabinet. To, to... so for listeners, uh, I've been in there once, once or twice. Just tell us the room layout. What it's it's quite a big room, quite long, long room. It's got some pillars in it. Right? It's got some pillars in it. So if you get some seats, you're stuck behind the pillars. So yeah. like the football, it's like stands, a restricted view. A restricted view. So if you're at football, I wondered, do you get like discounted tickets? But or I assume like you don't put the Home Secretary or the Foreign Secretary in restricted view. I no, I, I, I suspect not. Who, I suspect, who, Jonathan Gullis would be probably Jonathan Gullis is Ken. We're doing that third person thing again. I'm gonna I'm gonna own it now and yeah. you know show that go. I've gone fully mad uh, and uh, and own it. But no, I think what happened is um so you come in uh it's obviously the long table lots of chairs there's normally a pencil on a pencil stand uh and then a mat in order to do some writing on is it branded uh yes it is uh once or twice but not the last time i was in there i just get a bic uh uh, a normal pencil Uh, no pencils it was uh, no pens pens. um there's normally now a big television screen uh, near the entrance and exit where obviously they're having presentations. Uh, the Prime Minister's chair has got arms on it, whereas in everyone else's doesn't. And yeah. then you've got the fireplace behind the Prime Minister, some nice artwork behind. So uh, obviously you know the, 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 the seat, as it were. Mm. And then what's clever is the Prime Minister can use that to their advantage. So I was in there recently, uh, bacon butty and uh, a cup of tea. Bacon butty is very nice. But what's even nicer, James, is that the plate was from Churchill, China, and the uh, mug was from Duchess, China, both Stoke-on-Trent's finest. So it's good to see that the Prime Minister is backing the Stoke-on-Trent ceramics industry. And I've also been there uh, one-to-one with Boris when there was some of the, uh, I think it was dubbed the Plan B vote uh, when it came to COVID restrictions, where I think there was like over 100 colleagues rebelled. I was technically on payroll as a parliamentary private secretary, um, I was someone who was wobbly would be the term used in politics, someone who was considering potentially resigning and voting against the government. And I remember being called into the cabinet office to go and meet uh, with the prime minister, 
which I thought was odd because I was like, why would I not go to Downing Street? And then I got through the the special entrance that links the cabin office to Downing Street. Uh, the, the, the circle door The thing. circle door thing, yeah. So out, out the movies, like James Bond MI5-esque style yeah. doors, go through there and then led into the cabinet room. And it was just myself, Mark Spencer, who was then the chief whip, and Boris Johnson. And uh, it, it's a useful tool to a prime minister to, uh, if you want to be thrown off. Do you feel intimidated when you go in there? 100%. Because... That's a room that you've you never thought you'd be in unless you're in cabinet. I never thought I would ever be in that room unless I was mm. a member of the cabinet. So suddenly I'm in this room that I've seen on the TV many times before. Dreamed one day might be sat there as a as a secretary of state. Although There's still time yet. Well, Michael's clearly plugging, so you know we'll, we'll, I'll let Rishi know. Yeah. Um. And and then obviously yeah, you've got the chief whip at the time and Boris Johnson sat opposite you, and you're having to justify your potential decision and they've got all the data all the yeah. all the numbers all the information from the civil service and you're going off what you've read what's been given to you at that time in particular information was very fast moving and changing and different scientists had different opinions so yeah it was intimidating and look on that occasion i was convinced by boris that because it was a time limited intervention don't throw away the career opportunity having at the time. And also, you know, is this something we don't need to look divided. This is an important time for the country. COVID mm. is rightly worrying people. We need to be united as a parliament, not just a political party. And so I, I took that into account and the views of constituents and decided that maybe where I had my own views, I'd park them to one side. So it is intimidating. I can imagine if you're a new Secretary of State in it, it must take a while, I would guess, to get your feet under the table and feel confident to be a strong voice, especially when you're in a room with people like Michael who have been there, as you said, with four prime ministers now. Well, I think Michael touched upon first becoming a cabinet minister uh, after coming in you know, in the 2010 election and said, you know, there's a moment when you realise, like, I am the education secretary. And I think it's quite similar to... There's a, when you become a special advisor, I remember sitting in meetings... And you would say, well, I don't think we should be doing that. You know, that's, that's, I've had a look at the submission. And, this isn't it. and people would be like, oh, right, okay. And they'd be like, oh, we should change that. This, this is the language we should use. And you realise that no one in a room is massively going to challenge you. You know, you'll say, this is the way we should go. That's the thing. This is the thing. We you're should. like the senior person in the room at that time, maybe. <clears throat> and there is a bit that you're like, well, should this definitely be me? I'm not <laughs> sure I'm the right person to do that. <laughs> Why have they put this? Who's put this faith in me? Uh, or the, the time obviously it was Michael and then Pretty. I mean, I always think, I mean, Michael's obviously an incredibly honest person. You know, lots of people should listen to that and think we all suffer from a bit of imposter syndrome. I mean, I'm sure it's the case with MPs, you know, that from, if, they're, if they're honest privately sometimes think, well, it's quite a big job. Look, I, I remember having got the call to be um, the Minister for School Standards um, from Therese Coffey uh, and I was actually with my uh, parliamentary researcher, Harry, at the time, because it was the same day that we found out that uh, Her Late Majesty um, had passed away. Mm. And so we're busy working on, obviously, our, our statement uh, to go out to the press locally who had been asking for comment, you know, on the passing. And I got the call, and I remember kind of, like, taking it and then quickly going back to Harry because it was time-sensitive to come up with the comment and then sort of very casually said to him, oh, I'm FYI, I'm now a minister. Really? And Harry's like, and I think in his second, third day, his first week certainly in employment with me. So it's probably relieved, like, oh, he won't be in the office that much. So, you know, <laughs> uh, I won't have to deal I with I can get it. on with some work now. I can get on with some work and won't have to listen to his, his, his ramblings. 
but like even entering the department and then the fact that you, when I was able to go over there, the permanent secretary, all the directors of the areas that I'd be covering, just waiting for you. Then at seven o'clock at night, your private office, bless them, are hanging around waiting to say hello to you, probably thinking, knowing that I always banged on my education stuff. So I was one of those ones probably on some like red list of like, oh God, you know, it's got this uh, gobbing off again on education policy and trying to convince them that the caricature on Twitter doesn't match the reality of how I want to operate and work and what I want to focus on. And I remember like going to that first meeting in the department with Kit and all the directors and absolutely feeling like I like I don't deserve to be here. Like who's why do why do I? Mm. And looking at all these people going, they've been in this department for ages and Kit's been, you know, at the cabinet table. Like what do I know? I'm surrounded by Kelly Tolhurst, Andrew Jenkins, both been ministers for longer. Like what mm. do I do? Like how do I act? Like blah blah. And so to t and that's just a small level, a junior level, to then take that to the cabinet. I just, that blows my mind, mm. especially when you're getting, uh, you know, your Sam Coates of this world wanting to shout at you as you're getting out of your car <laughs> and walking into the door. The fact that you're getting papped every single time in and out. So like Michael said, covering your notes, yeah. something as basic as making sure your papers aren't on display because they're very sensitive, potentially security ones. So I think that's really, that was really interesting to hear. And also know that it's good to know that when they have those video cameras recording the new cabinet, that they are all like, this is really awkward mm. uh, and uncomfortable. And they're looking forward to those cameras leaving so they can actually crack on with the job of gov governing. I was also intrigued. I don't know. Michael was very honest, obviously, about the Brexit stuff. Yeah. And we obviously, to hear how they went around the table one by one in David's time and said how they were planning to campaign or vote, mm. leave or remain and justify it. I'm trying to imagine that moment because it's quite a big moment where David's finding out, probably he already knows roughly, but finding out just how idea. many people he's going to, you know, effectively campaign against him and the government at the time, which obviously firmly ran the campaign, as it were, for Remain. I mean, I don't think we want to do uh, a whole, whole thing on Brexit, but uh, obviously it was on vote leave at the time. And in the build-up, there was, I mean, there was obviously so much speculation, particularly Boris and Michael, uh, would they back the Leave campaign? They were the main names, right? Yeah, and also they were, I, God, I can't remember who, if there was any other particularly big names, but I think people roughly felt like they knew where everyone else would go. I think they probably knew that, you know, IDS would back Leave, and, and as Michael alluded to, I think it was quite clear that uh, Chris Grayling would, but there was a lot of speculation. Obviously, Michael said himself he's, he was very close to Michael. I'm, I can only imagine how tough that decision must be to decide to go with your conscience for a long-held view but to know that it's going to be difficult for, as he said, a friend and someone who he had helped become prime minister. Uh, that's an, you know, that's not a decision you would envy taking, right? But there was a lot of speculation. I think I'm trying to think when we knew. I don't think we knew for certain. Maybe until they came over. What is true is on the day, as he said, there was a cabinet meeting on a Saturday. So they all go over to cabinet. Well, it's all everyone knew what the cabinet was. It's all on TV. Uh, we're watching it in the office. And um, so we were told, oh, five, I think it was five cabinet ministers were going to come over. So it was all planned. So we were in the vote leave office, which was which is just on the other side in Lambeth of, of Westminster. Um, we're waiting for five cabinet ministers. So it's, I think Chris Grayling, IDS, Priti Patel. Michael would have been. John Whittingdale. Not, there's another one. God, Here we go, finally, James, James has forgotten the name. <coughs> I've forgotten the name, there was another one. Um, we'll to get our friend Saki Batty, who uh, remembers the Birmingham Northfield MP that I forgot about, uh, and whose name I've yet again forgotten. Was Pretty a cabinet minister then? Yes, I'm sure Pretty, she was. Pretty was. So th those five, so we knew they were coming over, not Michael, not Michael. 
then cabinet meeting finishes and uh, I, I hope i mean i can't remember if this has been written before i think probably it has cabinet meeting finishes and we get a kind of text or a call and some, someone says right they're all on the way over it was a 10 minute drive max from downing street and then someone says michael's coming over and we were like what that's not the plan i think the plan was if you know when he comes out that that would be a big reveal on its own because i think boris actually maybe was a few days after like a big separate reveal yeah and it and how, um, it turned out, I think Michael had just got into, I think it was Chris Grayling's car and said, yeah, I'm just going to come over as well. <laughs> so Michael turned up, so we had six cabinet meetings. It was completely unplanned, uh, the Michael coming over. Uh, and so that would have been the press focus, right? So that would have been suddenly um, having to prepare for... That was a mad day because, you know, you'd you'd been working on this campaign for a while. You'd, you know, there'd been a few MPs, but they, you know, the big, the big, the big beasts, if yeah. you like, were coming in. Uh, and it was, you know, it was absolutely chock-a-block with media. It was a proper chaos. I think what I also was interested to hear from Michael was, and because I, I, maybe this is a little geekery for me, but hearing about that preparation in advance of government, the fact that Michael spent, you know, three years writing the Academy's bill and having it effectively ready to go as soon as they landed. So they didn't have to wait for the department. They could go, here's the draft. Go and let me know what the lawyers say. And I think... You know, that makes me really think, you know, in terms of now Rishi has come in, obviously, without at the start, not at the start of a parliament. Is he, I wonder if he's using time privately to have policies looked at and thinking if after a general election, I'm still prime minister. Keir Starmer's clearly preparing mm. uh, his members because I think it's just Yvette Cooper and David Lammy, the only two who have actually been in government before. Keir himself's never even actually been no. in government. So like learning how to run a department, I think that's really, really interesting. And well, I, I wonder how easy that in itself is as well to to learn the theory versus the reality i think you'll yeah i think you'll see that i mean i, th I thought that was really interesting as well when michael talk, talked about their preparation for government um and it sounds you know like they'd put quite a lot of thought into it and a lot of planning and getting the right people like he said michael barber who'd actually advised labor before helping get them ready lord um, nash lord agnew as they're now called obviously uh, exactly time. also when i look you know the kind of level that i worked at with the advisors I mean, they're going to have just a massive change as well because at the moment, I don't know exactly what offices they work in, but their days are obviously completely different. So if you're a shadow minister at the moment or you're a pad, you're not sidetracked constantly by things going wrong or trying to get things done. You're just trying to hammer home your message. You're trying to hammer home your message. And so it's a totally, having done quite a few election campaigns of different types, that's kind of, it seems, I imagine that is roughly what it's like on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, a bit slower than an election campaign, but essentially it's more about messaging and that kind of stuff. And then they've obviously, you know, spent a lot, a lot of time meeting with stakeholders. But, you know, in department, it, a lot of, I guess the big difference is a lot of work is created for you. So things you don't want to happen, you don't want to be dealing with, you have to do. So, you know, if you're in the home office and you wake up in the morning and Sky are running a story that 20 small boats have come over in the morning. You don't think to yourself the night before, oh, I hope we have to deal with small boats in the morning. That's you're having to react to right? You wake up in the morning, you're like, you have to deal with that or whatever's going on. Or if you're in the health department at the moment, you're having to deal with strikes. You don't, you know, you don't want to deal with strikes. I mean, I'm sure Rishi didn't come into politics to, you know, focus on small boats. You know, I think he came in to deal with education, improve maths and that kind of stuff. But the fact is he's become prime minister where he has to deal with these other issues. It'll be, if they do come in, it is a big, it's a big difference. Absolutely. I think it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out and whether or not all the training that they've put in and what they're clearly doing, how, how well that's worked and how smooth it is and also how much stuff they've clearly written in advance. And I think 
the other challenge is for Rishi probably, and look, we've heard Michael's going to be working with Onward, for example. So those mm. kind of think tanks that are sympathetic to a certain political party, uh, how much that they're going to sort of work on the side on certain policies and ideas. Uh, well, we spoke to David Linden, and and uh, you know he talked about how they you know rely quite a lot on think tanks like the Resolution Foundation, the Joseph Blanchard yeah. Foundation. And so they, you know, that's, I guess, where some of their preparation for policy comes from. For me, you always think about the cabinet room and that's where cabinet is. And the regional cabinet, I suppose, in part when it came to Stoke-on-Trent, you know, a part of you thinks, and the, and the local media, I remember saying like, oh, this is just a gimmick. And in part you think, oh, it's just a great excuse to get some photos with the minister or the prime minister uh, and go around. But actually... It means so much to local people to feel like that level of decision-making, that level of importance of individual in the running of our country have decided to make big decisions to talk about policy in an area. That, so do you think they should get out more? I think they should. I think the regional tour stuff is good. I get that there's, it's got to be considered how often you can do that because, mm. of course, there's logistics, security, logistics. And, there, and with all that comes cost, whereas in mm. the Downing Street, that's already factored into. But I think it's good. I think it's great for local communities to to feel that presence, to feel those people. I know it was something that was really buzzed about positively on the doorsteps because they were saying that it made them feel that when people were driving down the Middleport Street and they, sorry, down the streets of Middleport and they were looking at, you know, maybe the pothole in the road or some litter down the alleyway, which, you know, exists in every community, but actually also seeing the history of Middleport pottery, their identity as a city, literally the pottery is named, you know, named after it uniquely, unlike many other places. They, it felt like people say like, oh, they they do get a sense of who we are. So I think that those those touring cabinets actually are important. I think and I forgot about David Cameron having gone to Aberdeen. Mm. I think it's positive, and I also think it's good when we've got devolution that the UK government does go into those devolved areas as well and spends time there. So, otherwise, it can feel maybe to the people in Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland. But she hasn't attached. done one yet, has he? I don't think Rishi has done a tour. No, he hasn't done one yet. I'd be surprised if they don't do one at some point. I would certainly reckon, I just think it's positive. And that, you don't have to go to the Midlands. You don't have to go to North. Cornwall is as deserving. Well, obviously, they've recently had, uh, you know, summits. G7. G7 there. But, you know, I think it's good. It's good for these areas to feel that they're taken care of. But, of course, as I say, there's logistics to take into account of how feasible it is and to do it as regularly, maybe, as you'd want to do versus the reality of it. But I think it's a positive thing overall. I suppose what I'm always interested in as well is when you see the cabinet is that is that reshuffle that Michael talked about and very candidly shared the uh, the experience of mm. uh, you know, getting sacked um, by Theresa in 2016 and to hear and it is that thing. It's always quite interesting when you see the ministers in the morning, including ministers of state and stuff like that, milling around the tea room nearby where the prime minister's office is, frantically looking at the phone call, hoping to get to the afternoon. It tends to be. As uh, Michael said, if you uh, in, well, if, in the mornings if, of the sackings in the PM's office, you know if you go, I think the I think the gist of it is if you get called to a meeting in the Commons, yeah, you're gone, you're gone. Uh, so if you get through that, and what, the, what I they always don't drag you around, you don't, they don't drag you around. And what my favourite thing to hear about is when you hear um, colleagues, you can see them breathe a sigh of relief when the Prime Minister's reported to be now back in Downing Street, right. <laughs> That brings an hour of that. calmness. You can hear people, you can literally see it on people's faces. You can hear the, on you know, under people's breaths. Like they know now they're staying in government. Mm. The question now is, where in government am I going? And you can see, you can see that in there. Because not to touch on a sensitive to topic, but you obviously were in with Liz. Yeah. I've been and you, you left. So 
Do you, I mean, do you mind? Like, no, no, of course not. How, I'll share how it. Did, how, did, how did you find out? So um, Rishi's obviously come in and I think at the time he, he's come in, he started the reshuffle at the latter half of the week. So most MPs are back in their constituencies. And it was feeling like it was taking a very long time, probably longer than what Rishi wanted. But it then came to fruition that it was via the grapevine on WhatsApp that rumour was Rishi's personally himself making every phone call. Is that not normal? So normally it would just be the Prime Minister would speak to their cabinet and then you'd get the Chief Whip talking to junior ministers. Goes below. Um, and, may, and maybe some other senior ministers who are big allies of the Prime Minister maybe do some of the phone calls, like the Deputy Prime Minister. Like right. Therese was the one who called me about the job because Liz was obviously dealing with the Queen's passing, so Therese took over the phone calls when I was appointed. Therese Kofi. Uh, Therese Kofi, yeah. So I think that, so I was actually just got back into the constituency office and you see a call from a London number and answered it and they say this is number 10 switch, which means the switchboard at number 10 mm. and the number 10 switch, uh, the Prime Minister would like to speak to you. And obviously I knew that we were still going through the sacking phase. There's no part of you that thought this is a keyboard James like pulling a prank on me. Uh, no, because luckily I, the number wasn't withheld. It, had it been withheld, <laughs> I would have ignored it. Uh, and I was terrified that was going to happen. Mm. So, but yeah, no, the number 10 switch, Prime Minister, so obviously, you know the sackings are still live. So ultimately, yes, in that moment, I instantly know. Part of you thinks, can I do some last minute like pleading to like <laughs> give me, I've only done 50 days. <laughs> come like, on, think, mate, give me a come break. Come on, mate, give me a break. And I must say, he was a classy act. Really? was very clear that it was not something that he found easy. Mm. He un totally wanted to say that he respected me as an individual, understands that particularly in education, this is an area of interest personally, having been a professional teacher, uh, my passion for the area, and said that he had received really positive feedback from internally in the department. But of course, you and I both understand politics, as does Rishi, that... I handbacked him. He had people who had been loyal to him from the mm. initial leadership contest that understandably he needs to put allies in positions. He was also doing a very good job of keeping people who weren't natural supporters of him in other jobs, but you have to find some space. And I was just one of those people he had to make mm. space from. And I thought it was, it was very kind. We spoke for 10 to 20 minutes. It wasn't a quick phone call at wasn't all. It wasn't rushed. Uh, no, it wasn't rushed at all. I mean, in fact, I was the one who said, I appreciate you're busy, so I'll let you go. It was, mm. He was clearly happy to stay on the phone for longer. And, uh, we, you know, he said, we'll stay in touch and we'll sort of, as it were, get to know each other. Rishi was someone I hadn't really, I wasn't doing a lot around treasury related stuff. So it was not an individual I'd got to know as well as maybe others, other ministers that I had with other briefs because mm. of the things I was pushing in Stoke-on-Trent. So yeah, we had the phone call and it ended and it was, uh, yeah, it was hard. Look, I, you know, sobbed a bit afterwards because mm. I, I was excited by the opportunity. I thought I was going to you know, uh, I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to, I suppose, challenge the caricature that I'm aware is out there of me. I wanted to do some good stuff. And I, and I suppose it was, for me, if there was any job in government, that was it. Minister of School Standards, I dreamed of it. I, you know, I always wanted to be the one who took over from Nick Gibb. And we joked that one day I'll be his predecessor. Mm. Little did I know he would be my successor. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, but we've joked about that subsequently. And, I, you know, it's, it was good. But I think it shows a classy act. But I can imagine for a cabinet minister the pain of it because, as you know, your job's on the line with your boss. And of course, when a minister goes, as Michael would have experienced in 2016, the conversation is, is that the end? Is that the end of, you know, Michael Gove, will he forever come yeah, back? Yeah, the same as, I mean, it's, I think it's different for you guys because if you lose your job as a minister or a cabinet minister, you are still an MP. Whereas if, when a SPAD goes, that that is literally yeah, their yeah. job. Uh, I think people kind of forget that. So when there's reshuffle... Technically speaking, if you're a special advisor, you're tied to your Secretary of State. So if tomorrow morning there's a reshuffle and 
ex-cabinet minister leaves, he's got three spads. Now, they might be able to find another job. Or they might, if the cabinet minister goes to another department, they may all want to take them. But they can end up leaving, and they'll get, I think, about three months severance. I, My first time, I, I resigned from DEFRA over the deal, so I didn't actually get any severance at all. You found uh, that out after you resigned? I didn't 100% know that, no. I mean, I did have an idea. But yeah, I basically... No, I, I didn't get anything. So that cost me about £15,000. But um, but yeah, you and then, so you do have that, the unseen scramble. So you have the cabinet minister and ministers moving around. The unseen scramble is spats. You know, they're like... And how long does that normally happen after you see like the new cabinets that were appointed? Like how quickly... It weeks. So I kind of, I just went in, went in, went out, went in, went out. So I didn't kind of move around during the reshuffle. But uh, obviously you've got lots of friends. So... It can be the case that quite quickly you happen to know another cabinet minister or you've got a good relationship with number 10 and they say, oh, we need someone doing media and education. Can you go over there? And you're like, yeah, let's do that. I guess the biggest change is you get a brand new, someone who's never been in cabinet before. So it's quite possible that Rishi will promote someone to cabinet on his next reshuffle who has never been in cabinet before. Yeah. So they probably don't have relationships with someone who's naturally, you know, a special advisor. They can take someone out of the parliamentary office they don't have the experience of government, as we talked about with PADS as well. It's quite a different job. So I think taking all of those people would be very risky because you'd have a lot of people learning on the job as well as the Secretary of State. Uh, so normally you want a couple of people who have at least got some experience. So that's where you'll get an opportunity that if your boss has gone, you may, maybe it'll be a couple of weeks and they're kind of searching around and you might get a chance to go back in. I mean, look, the truth is, uh, one of the most common questions I get is how do you get to be as bad? Like for me, it was total luck. You know, I'd met people on vote leave. Uh, that gave me an opportunity to go and interview for Michael when a friend of, but that was because a friend of mine left working for Michael and said, I know you're interested in this. Would you like to do this? Uh, so there's, there's not a kind of, so we're saying, they didn't put job ads up. We need this, the name of this person to blame for James Stark ever entering government. We need to, at some stage we have to name them. They are all to blame. Yeah, that's They're all true. to blame. That's who, that's who we should know. Yeah. That and person then, knows who they are. That person knows who they are. And then, uh, Dr. Simon People, Labour councillor in Tamworth, is the one to blame for for you for me getting elected. I'm definitely going to put all the blame that way. I'm sure he'll be grateful for that. I'm sure he'll be delighted. I think, uh, well, of course, the proudest thing, James, of cabinet, is to hear that Michael Gove turns his pottery and he checks that that Stoke on Trent insignia is on the bottom. Of I think the he dock. was. I mean, I'm I'm very disappointed. That was the that was the part I was most disappointed in Michael because he's really encouraging you on that one encouraging me i think what he's doing is standing up for the potteries and i hope that what i'm now going to do is i have to go around every cabinet minister and just double check that they're also doing likewise and if not get michael to demonstrate what they should all do at all times because uh you know the last thing that we want is non-stoke on trent pottery in 10 downing street but i've also now got my three reasons why i should well i was gonna say be in, so be in cabinet what we did get from michael at the end <laughs> and if uh the prime minister is tuning in. Is listening. Which or, he is. I'm sure he is. I'm sure he is. Or any of the number 10 staff are listening. They need to pay close attention because Michael's given them three reasons why Jonathan Gullis should be in the next cabinet. So what I, should, so what I took from that is Michael's clearly endorsing me. Uh, and now when that when that starts, I will have the phone on loud and, and near me because, of course, it could be any moment. And I'm sure he'll be greeted warmly by many across the country that uh, Rishi Sunak has decided that Jonathan Gullis should... Uh, oh, there we go, third person again. Which which cabinet... What, so if What's he, the dream job? Well, I assume, you know, you, you, 
what are you going to, you, you won't settle for, for anything less than education. Social safe education. So if he calls you up and says, we need you in the environment department, you're going to say, I'm sorry, Rishi, it's just not a big enough job for me. I would probably just say, are you sure you definitely meant me for environment? I'm just, you know. It's the best brief. It probably is, but I, I suspect there's people far better educated to understand about what our environmental needs are than me. But it's funny you say that. Education is the obvious one. The dream job actually is the is the well-known title that we discussed is the minister without a portfolio. But what I mean by that is I would like to be, the dream, dream was always to follow Norman Tebbit and be the Conservative Party chairman. So I'd love to be the one attending cabinet and being there essentially as the political eyes and ears of the parliamentary party and the party at large and making sure that the policy will land with members but also help win elections in the country. That would be the dream job. Like that's the one. In fact, it was the second week of being an MP our whips at the time sat down with us. Mine, mine was Maria Caulfield and they were asking about, you know, long-term, where do you want to see yourself? And I said that that would be the dream job. That, would be, that That's the one I'd love more than anything. So if, if Rishi is looking for a youthful chairman, uh, what did Michael describe you as? Uh, fearless? Uh, fear, Before that, he fearless. said something else. He said, I think let's stick with fearless. He said fearless. Uh, you know, strong-willed, I'm sure. What, what did he say before that? Uh, it was, it was, you know, uh, a reckless, I think it was. Uh, but, uh, a reckless slash fearless party chairman. <laughs> then Jonathan kind of says, you're out. Give me a call. Give me a call. Uh, of course, Number Greg 10, Hans. you have both of our numbers. Also, hi, Greg Hans. Yeah. Just to let you know, in case you're tuning in, you are doing a fantastic job. And, uh, <laughs> I have, I am not pitching for your job before you call me. Uh, to, before to Greg ask, gets worried. Before Greg gets worried or asks for a, a call uh, to chat to, about the future. And I'm sure we've got our mutual friend in Conservative Campaign Headquarters will be delighted to know he'd have to deal with me on a daily basis, you know, sure, more, more than normal. Well, look, I think it's been, it was a great episode and I think we can all agree we thoroughly enjoyed having Michael on. There's one final question, James. Mm. You worked with Michael. We've all known Michael's talents. A political question, this one, but is Michael Gove the greatest prime minister that this country's never had or, to not put you on that spot necessarily, the leader of the Conservative Party should have had? Yeah, um, undoubtedly so. I think so. Why have four prime ministers called on him? Because he gets stuff done. That's why. I mean, in, you know, in, there'll be a mix of views amongst even people in the Conservative Party about Michael. But the one thing I don't think anyone questions, wherever they're from, is that Michael's a doer. He gets things done, whether it's in education, the environment, now in levelling up. Um, so he's incredibly effective. I think he does have a, you know, a kind of strong vision for things. Is there many people that are over the detail as much as he is? I don't think, I don't no, I think, think he's so. one of the strongest, by far one of the strongest individuals ever across. I mean, the other day, by the way, he's in levelling up brief. He taught, he pulled me over the other day and uh, as we were in the chamber, just sat next to me on the steps and started talking to me about the uh, Trade Remedies Authority and ceramics. Yeah. Now, I don't know, quite know where he's had the bandwidth <laughs> or time to, to swat up on that. And in fact, he knew a few more things that I somehow had missed. Uh, which was embarrassing. So, yeah, I, I, I think he's an incredible tour de force. The, he's an exceptional politician, and I think um, I do really... I put him up there, by the way, for the podcast listeners, because we appreciate that, you know, I'm ingrained with my natural bias, as I'm sure James is. I would say David Blunkett was one of those exceptional individuals. Um, Gordon Brown, clearly, as well, as, as well as Tony Blair. Uh, I'm just saying from 2010, who are individuals you point out, and I would say Michael Gove probably is since 2010 the mm. Alongside probably George Osborne, the two probably most influential and impactful uh, yeah. cabinet ministers. Outside uh, yeah. of the prime minister. Outside of, of the PM and and yeah. I think well, I think the whole I think the thing with Michael is outside of anyone that's been P Prime Minister or Chancellor, who obviously yeah. have 
a huge possibility of making a big impact on on everyday life. I think he he would there wouldn't be anyone else apart from him. I agree with that. And there we go. So that's our ramble at the end. But we want to say, please continue to follow and subscribe. Encourage others to follow and subscribe. Make sure that you give us a rating and a review. And you can follow us on Twitter at WhitehallPodUK. And we look forward to you tuning in for our next episode next week. Mm-hmm.